This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So I'm excited to have uh, Stephen Everline with us today, and I got to see Stephen in a TED Talk, and that's how I found him, and I reached out, and I said, I need to have you on the show to talk about preparing out loud, and that was the name of his TED Talk, and Stephen has a really great way of sharing how we as emergency managers can take a look at what community preparedness really means and a unique take. So Stephen, welcome to Ian Weekly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So, so Stephen, tell, tell me just a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the emergency management preparedness space. <laughs> it's a long story. Uh, I never planned whatsoever to be in this space. I am not a type A personality. I don't naturally prepare. I'm not a checklist kind of person. I'm, I came here by accident. And the quickest way to explain it is I followed my wife out to Sri Lanka in 2003. My wife was an aid worker during the ceasefire after a long civil war. And I went out to Sri Lanka with her as a Spanish teacher, of all things. Don't try to make sense of that because it really makes no sense whatsoever. And just about the time that we had completed our second year and had decided that we were going to move to the next country, the tsunami hit. Uh, My wife got a phone call and said, did you hear what just happened? And to hear that there was a tsunami that hit Sri Lanka was shocking. Uh, The most shocking thing about it was that I didn't actually know that a tsunami was a real phenomenon. Hmm. Truly didn't. It happened so rarely up to that point that I, I thought it was mythical. I thought it was unicorns and whirlpools and tsunamis all in the same bucket. I didn't know that it was a real phenomenon. I immediately left my teaching position to work side by side with my wife in, one, in the first year of the response effort. And then after a grueling, grueling year of response, uh, we moved back to Oregon, and we're both natives of Klamath Falls, Oregon. And the really surprising thing about moving back to Oregon in 2005 was that the, the awareness of our earthquake risk was just starting to enter wider consciousness. I grew up in Oregon, and we never heard anything about this earthquake risk. In fact, I was, I, was, I was a sophomore in high school in Klamath Falls, Oregon, and my geography teacher said, and I, I quote him directly, he said, there never have been and there never will be earthquakes in Oregon. This what? is 1993 Oregon. <laughs> and of course, naturally, the very next day in Klamath Falls, Oregon, we had a six-point earthquake, uh, which, you know, uh, that, that's one way to be proven wrong. Um, but... but the interesting thing, uh, the interesting thing about moving back was we were amongst the few people in the Pacific Northwest who could say that we understood very well firsthand 
what a subduction zone earthquake tsunami event looks like. And we move back the very moment that the Pacific Northwest is coming to grips with the fact that we've got something just like the Japanese earthquake tsunami on the horizon. And the question is, how do you, how do you convince a population to prepare for an event that is scary, that they don't understand very well, and that they've never experienced? And worse than that, their parents haven't experienced it, or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. The thing about the Pacific Northwest earthquake is we don't have stories. In Japan, they've got stories. In Chile, they've got stories. Even if you haven't experienced the subduction zone earthquake, your neighbor has. And you know what your grandma went through. And that's how we learn behaviors. We learn behaviors through stories. We learn behaviors through the visible actions of others. And that's what we don't have in the Pacific Northwest. We don't have any of that. So we're in an incredibly rare historical situation that there's incontrovertible evidence of what's coming and we have no experience in the event that we have all accepted that's coming and so we're in a cultural moment here that is almost unlike any other i think the only other similar situation would have been new orleans before katrina I grew up in Nor. I, I'm sorry. I went to I went to college in New Orleans, and it was before Katrina. But the common phrase at that time was "When the levees break." When the levees break, you hear it all the time because everyone had accepted that this was in the future. However, they hadn't actually come to grips with the cultural behavioral changes that needed to take place so that everyone was on the same page, sharing the same life-saving behaviors before that event. So and here we are in the Pacific Northwest. It's a similar situation. Right. So one of the things that you talk about in your TED Talk was the idea of, of cultural preparedness and what that means. And I know that we struggle here, and I know there's been different studies been done, and it's anywhere between 10% and and say 20% of people uh, across the United States that say that they're prepared. And I don't know really what that means, what questions are being asked with that, you know, whether that means they have some dried food and a, and a bottle of water in their car, or do they, do they really have a preparedness mindset? Um, but how do we engage from your perspective? How do we engage the public as emergency managers and get that culture shift of preparedness? So two things come to mind. First of all, the word empathy comes to mind. That when you're an emergency manager, when you're already an expert in this space of worrying and preparing for these events, I think sometimes we become frustrated with the public that they should be doing this and why aren't they doing that? And I think it starts with understanding that we naturally turn away from the things that make us uncomfortable and having a bit of empathy for that. And when we talk about these possible events, I think you kind of need to start with the science behind it, that the world's not just out to get us. I always start when I talk about any emergency with the scientific basis behind why we have to worry about it. So with the Cascadia subduction zone, 
I start with a good lesson in subduction. I don't talk about death. I don't talk about number of houses lost. I don't talk about length of utility disruption. A lot of those scary side effects are kind of embedded in the science itself. When you come to learn, for example, that the Earth is going to shake in the Pacific Northwest for five minutes, the knock-on effect of that is pretty obvious, and it's already embedded in the public's mind because they read the newspapers, right? This is already a worry. So I start by helping people understand the nature of the risk. And as far as the cultural behavior and the behavior shift, what I hope to get people do, to do is to not only prepare, but we're trying to recruit advocates for preparedness. I think sometimes emergency managers and preparedness experts aren't the best advocates. I think the best advocate in a workplace might be the secretary. It might be the HR manager. It's the person that everyone likes and trusts most within the office. The person who kind of sets the culture of the office might be the best preparedness advocate. If you can convince those people, the people we like to listen to, to not only take life-saving action, but to show other people the action they're taking, I think we're more likely to see the knock-on effect of an actual culture change. You talk about in your in your TED talk um, about the how, how do you say it again the the uh, impromptu or the unwilling camper. <laughs> I, I really love that analogy. Right. So I and I love and I know you and I talked um, last week a little bit um, and you're talking about how you like the idea of preparing the prepared out loud where people if they were standing on the street corner, they might be more willing to talk about preparedness. Can you talk about both those concepts a little bit? Because I love, I love the idea that you become a camper, even if you don't like camping. Sure. And so I think the quote that, uh, that I used in the Ted talk was we already know how to go camping. We just don't feel ready for camping to come to us. (laughs) And (laughs) so Here's the reason that that line works. So when you communicate with the public, you got to meet them where they're at. And camping is something that we associate with fun. And it's actually an activity where we're taking a lot of control over ourselves and our environment. We're proving to ourselves when we camp that, yes, I can go without electricity. I can go without shampoo and a running shower. I can learn to cook on a little Coleman stove, et cetera. And we are actually, especially during the summer, we're we're practicing preparedness and we just don't even realize it. So it's a way to show the audience that, listen, even if you don't camp, I guarantee that you basically understand the concept of camping. And you probably already know someone who camps a lot, which means preparedness culture is right there. We have the gist of preparedness culture, especially on the West Coast, with us. What we haven't quite caught up with is the mindset that basically preparedness means being ready to spontaneously camp. Um, So as I say, If we're ready to spontaneously camp at work, in our car, and at home, with all the food, water, and supplies that you would have for camping, you're as ready for an earthquake 
as you could possibly be. And also, if you're ready for an earthquake, you're pretty ready for wildfires. You're ready for ice storms. You're ready for power outages. You're ready for pretty much anything that man or nature can throw you because nothing's harder than being ready for an earthquake. And Todd, um, ask me that second question again. I already forgot it. Um, sure. The, the, the question was, how did you come up with the concept of the prepared out loud? Oh, that's a good question. So it happened by accident. I was, I was in a meeting with various nonprofit agencies that were coming together to discuss how we can start approaching the public with a message that will resonate. And quite spontaneously, I noted that we in that room as messengers were not as influential as the person sitting right next to another in a cubicle. Probably the most influential thing you could have, you could see is the person sitting next to you with an earthquake bag. Mm. That's more influential than someone sitting in front of you saying, go get ready for an earthquake. Seeing the visible example of others is the thing that I believe is completely missing. And it's also something that's countercultural. And that's part of the difficulty. We, here, look at it this way. Look at it this way. Consider how much we smoked in the 50s. <laughs> Consider the fact that we didn't wear seatbelts in the 70s, okay? Now, I know that legislation played an action in smoking cessation and with us buckling up. But there's another factor that took place that we haven't recognized. The thing is, you can't quit smoking secretly. Right. You can be a closet smoker, but you can't really be a closet quitter. So when you see your uncle or aunt or brother or sister or father quit smoking, you know it. And most importantly, if you're still smoking, that has an impact. That has an impact on you. It weighs on your mind because for one, you were reinforcing each other smoking before, but you just lost a smoking ally. And that, that, I feel like it's, you know, <laughs> I feel like that undermines your motivation to keep smoking and starts to reinforce the need to start quitting. Same with buckling up. No one secretly buckles up. When we started buckling up, the first time you saw your boss, your father, your sister buckle up in a car when they weren't buckling up before, it sends a message. This is a car where we wear our seatbelt. And that has an impact. Now, let's fast forward to where we are right now. There are people out there who are preparing. Home preparedness right now, is, it's like flossing. Right? It's something you do secretly. I think if we were on the sidewalks flossing, then it would probably influence more people to floss. <laughs> right now, we are secretly preparing, but the fact that our preparedness is secret in a way means that it's not as influential as it could be. So what Prepare Out Loud is trying to do is exactly that. It's trying for this very cultural situation to teach people to do something countercultural, which is not only to prepare, but to prepare as publicly as possible so that just like buckling up, just like quitting smoking, your preparedness can start to influence the people 
that only you have influence over. Because most people are never going to hear from an emergency manager. Mm. Most people are never going to go to a Red Cross preparedness presentation. But everyone's got a friend. Everyone's got a neighbor. Everyone's got a mom or a dad. Uh, everyone's got a family member. And if we can start getting those people, that 10% maybe, who have taken action to start showing what they've done, that's going to have more influence than all of us emergency managers and preparedness advocates can have together. The rest of that story when we return from our break. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Exercises are a cornerstone of emergency preparedness, but can be costly, time-consuming, and complicated. TTX Vault can ease the exercise planning process with our wide array of tabletop, drill, and functional exercise packages that are fully adjustable. Once you choose the appropriate discipline and emergency scenario, you'll receive the exercise, all HSEEP suggested paperwork pre-filled out, access to our online simulation environment, Chelsea County, USA, and 30 minutes of phone consultation. Get your time back at ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that quick break. And thank you so much for listening to the sponsors because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly. And hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. Can you tell us um, a little bit about what the common sense gap is and, and, and how that's important? And then I'd like you to go deeper into your experience in Sri Lanka and how that really impacted your your journey into where you are today? So the common sense gap recognizes that preparedness happens within a culture. It doesn't happen in isolation. It actually happens within a culture. And it takes time for a culture to catch up with the knowledge of its risk. So it was long after we realized cars were dangerous that we started actually buckling up. It was long after we realized that smoking was dangerous, that smoking cessation became a major part of the movement. And in the Pacific Northwest, especially, and also other places in the United States, the level of seismic risk, earthquake risk, is relatively new information. And just because you have common knowledge in a population of the risk, it doesn't mean they're automatically going to adapt culturally immediately to that fact. And so that moment between knowledge being attained and culture changing is what I call the common sense gap. Because even though we know we should be preparing for this earthquake, culturally we haven't made the full evolution yet. So we're in that common sense gap where we know that we should be preparing for this earthquake, but we don't actually expect each other to prepare yet because it just hasn't become fully integrated into our culture. That's the common sense gap. Mm -hmm. And a little bit more on my experience in Sri Lanka. So I was a geography teacher and a Spanish teacher in Sri Lanka. My wife was an aid worker and doing reconstruction projects in rebel-held territory of Sri Lanka. And the day of the tsunami was a really weird one. I learned about the tsunami that had hit Sri Lanka in the bathroom of a mall. 
I was just coming out of the bathroom. A man stopped me on the way out and he said, sir, I want to let you know that there has been a massive earthquake and a tsunami is coming this way. And then he just left. It was like the most awkward bathroom conversation in history, right? <laughs> and I go out, <laughs> I leave the bathroom, I find my wife. And I said, listen, this dude just told me that there's been an earthquake and a tsunami is coming. And I'll never forget my wife's response. Just with the stain on her face, she said, this isn't Japan. And that was an appropriate response. Uh, but we didn't really have full understanding of what even created a tsunami. And of course, that man in the bathroom was completely correct. That indeed, there had been a tsunami that had hit Sri Lanka. And subsequently, we would know that 35,000 people perished within essentially a span of 24 hours from that event. Right. And then the kind of the stranger thing, after one year of working together on that effort of responding to this subduction zone earthquake tsunami event, we returned to Oregon, where in 2006, we were just really coming to grips with the fact that we have a subduction zone earthquake and tsunami in our future. Uncanny that a native Oregonian and I just returned with my wife from a subduction zone earthquake and tsunami to my home, which is just learning then that we have a subduction zone earthquake and tsunami coming. And then the 2011 Tahuku earthquake occurred, which is essentially a mere event of what we should expect in the Pacific Northwest. And then Catherine Schultz writes the really big one that's all about the Cascadia subduction zone how big it's going to be and how unprepared we are. And what I saw in Oregon is that people are starting to freak out and really start looking for information. And as a Red Crosser, I found that I had an opportunity to tell my story from a regular guy's point of view, from an Oregonian's point of view, from someone who doesn't naturally prepare. I don't really have preparedness in my DNA. I'm not a checklist guy. I'm not someone who worries very much about things, but I am a native Oregonian who just happened to go through the event that's in our future, which gave me an opportunity to tell our story, my wife and my story, through Prepare Out Loud, which is the presentation I've been giving for the last two and a half years. And nice. Prepare Out Loud has a lot of the things that you're going to see in any preparedness presentation. Of course, we talk about food. Of course, we talk about water. Of course, we show you how to secure your water heater and things like that. But the important element is that I make it as personal as possible. The audience needs to see a regular guy, not a preparedness expert, a regular guy who's worried about his three little kids and how he's going to go retrieve them from schools. That's an important exercise in empathizing with the audience because I don't think people necessarily respond to preparedness experts. I think mm -hmm. they respond to human beings. So I do my very, very best to humanize the preparedness experience autobiographically through the examples of my own family. And ultimately what I hope to do with Prepare Out Loud is to not only create more prepared people, but to create preparedness advocates, because that's actually where the culture comes in. Take Japan, take Chile, 
the place they learn preparedness, it's, it's not from their local Red Cross. It's not from emergency management. They learn their preparedness from grandma. They learn mm. it from mom and dad. They learn from their neighbors, from their bosses. They learn it from people that they know, trust, and who have experienced major events. That's what we're lacking in the Pacific Northwest. The best that we can do is try to create a culture from scratch of regular people like me, like you, that are doing their best to get prepared and showing that preparedness to other people and learning to talk about preparedness for an event they haven't experienced with other people because that is actually how preparedness culture is spread. It's not through any agency on high telling us what to do. It's from conversations between people who trust each other and the examples that we show each other. So that's what it's all about, creating preparedness advocacy. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was thinking about this, that we're two or three generations removed from a culture of preparedness. If you think about the uh, Great Depression generation, so it would be like my, my dad's parents, were ones who were adults during the Great Depression. My dad was a, was a kid. And I remember my grandfather, he was always had stuff. He was always ready to go. He, he never was without canned foods. And I mean like canned foods like where they canned themselves and things like that. And they were pretty self-sustainable um, during this time. And we have lost that because, you know, my, my dad didn't teach me that. And I, I don't know how to do that. You know what I mean? So I can't teach my kids. No, I th- and I think there's actually – an evolution that takes place there. Of course, the Depression era generation, they adapted. They followed common sense because common sense was demanded to survive. And they completely changed their life and culture because of it. And their children probably followed to a degree some of the examples that they saw. But then one more generation after that, not only are we not emulating our grandparents' example, we make fun of it. And part of the reason we make fun of it is because it has, those examples have become so far removed from our culture. And also, I think we come to resent it a little bit because we don't like someone who is giving us the idea that we're not going to be able to continue living exactly as we are now with the comfort and the security of being able to get and have the things that we need. We don't like that reminder. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do? We make fun of it. We make fun of the stinginess. We make fun of the fact that, you know, they won't throw away the last quarter can of beans because they can eat it next Wednesday. We mock it because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to even imagine the possibility. And the things we don't feel comfortable with, what do we do? Yeah, we mock them. That's the acceptable mm-hmm. way to deal with discomfort. And that's also why we make fun of people who prepare. People who prepare, especially people who prepare publicly, are kind of a different, they're a different type. And it makes us uncomfortable, in part because we know we should probably prepare as well. But what's easier to do is to mock a prepper or to lap at your crazy uncle and all the the solar radios and the water he has in his basement. It's, It's easier to mock than to emulate, especially the actions that make it a little bit uncomfortable. That is very true. Wow. Well, you know, thank you very much for, for that insight, I tell you, because it really makes me start thinking. That's what I love about doing 
these shows as, as a professional. I, I love to talk to people and start really kind of, you know, thinking outside of, of what our normal process is. So I hope that those of you that are out there listening um, have gotten some of the same questions in the head of how we can engage our uh, jurisdiction and, and the residents and, and the people who we're in charge of, I suppose, um, how we can help them be ready for, for the next disaster because they're coming. You know, obviously we've had a pretty rough year here this year with some disasters. And even if it's not the big earthquake, we've had the, the big hurricanes, we've had the uh, fires and, and, and whatnot to the storms. So so one of the things that I know that, we're, that we as the emergency management community is working on, um, and it started with the uh, Rockefeller Foundation um, with the 1,000 uh, resilient cities and working with resiliency. And I think the cool part about looking at that program is it's not about the top-down emergency manager saying what to do. It is really building a community coalition around preparedness and resiliency. Using that term is really important because it's not preparing necessarily for the big disaster. It's for Mm -hmm. anything that can come into the community. What do you think of using that terminology? Does that, does that, strengthen the position of the community when i say that does that position the, the, does that strengthen the position of the elected officials and, and governance bodies uh with people and and making it more a holistic collaborative approach do you think using those terminologies i like the terminology i, I like the terminology of coalition i like the terminology of resilient cities i like the idea of mayors and city planners reaching out to each other and doing a combined effort. I think that those are, I think that all those things are positive. But let me ask this, of that Resilient City initiative, how many mayors have actually shown to their audience, their, uh, their constituents, the preparedness measures that they have personally taken at home? And how many emergency managers have done that as well? I think that part of what we miss in the messaging, and again, the Resilient Cities Initiative, it's all good. But one thing I think that we sometimes miss is how personal preparedness is. So I think one more layer to any preparedness messaging is that personal touch. Because what we're asking you to do is change your personal behavior in your own home and how you work with your children. This is the most personal thing you can ask of someone. And so if you wanna have an impact with any of these initiatives, I think we just need to go one more layer down and we need to show personal examples. We need to show mayors leading the way with their own example. But here's the initiative and here is my personal participation in this initiative. Look, here we're in the back of my car. Here's my water, and here's my life straw. And look, here we're in my home. This is how much food I have, and this is where I keep it. And look, I've actually secured my cabinet so it doesn't fall over on my three-year-old. Right. People really need that visual example because without the visual personal example, it does come off as top-down. And the top-down approach, I think, can be alienating without us intending it to be. We have the best of intentions when we're messengers. but the personal touch is, I think, what's meaningful. Because anytime you learn something personal about someone, it's, you're sure, they're sharing something with you. Mm-hmm. And that's meaningful. I think we're more likely to listen um, if we can take any of these initiatives 
and work it all the way down to the personal touch of leaders showing what they are personally doing um, at the household level or the workplace level to walk the walk of what they're asking everybody to do. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh, one of the things I thought was really kind of cool um, was with uh, one of the colleges that was participating in the great shakeout. And they did a, a photo contest at this college. It's uh, UCI, uh, University of California, Irvine. And the president of the college took a picture of himself at the time underneath the, his desk for the great shakeout showing that he was participating in that great shakeout. And I think that really something like that at that level really tells all the staff and faculty members and the students that, Hey, I'm participating in this too. You should participate. I really like that, that leading from the front. I think that's important. Well, and I'll tell you what, uh, during every presentation that I do with the exception of a Ted talk, um, the presentations I do called prepare out loud, we do, we do a drop cover, hold on drill every single presentation. And there are a few reasons why that's necessary that I think it's really easy to overlook. Um, for one, the reason that we already know as preparedness advocates in the EMS is that drop, cover, hold on. It's not an intellectual, it, it's not something for your frontal lobe, for the intellectual part of your brain. We're trying to reach into the more instinctual part of your brain. And the instinctual part of your brain to respond to physical repetitive practice. Right. So that's one reason to do lots of drop, cover, hold drills. But there's a second, there's a second thing that's even more important than that, is that when you are in an earthquake, you're likely to not be alone. And everyone, I feel like when you're in an earthquake and everyone starts to say, hey, is this really happening? They look at each other. And they're starting to gauge what their response should be based on other people's reaction. Yep. So I like to do drop cover hold drills and we do full volume drop cover hold drills in part to make people uncomfortable because that's part of an emergency is the uncertainty and the feeling dorky when you're the first person to drop to the ground and everybody might be looking at you like you're an idiot. We need to get through that. And the best way to do that is to get 300 people in a room and surprise them with a drop cover hold drill and watch what happens. I'm the first person to drop to the ground. All right, it's unannounced every time. I'm the first person who drops and I watch people reluctantly follow suit because what happens is I set up a permission structure that, listen, I'm giving you permission. I'm the I'm the dang presenter in front of 300 of you. And here I am on the ground and almost out of politeness, people start getting under their <laughs> And then more start happening. And it's a chain reaction because just like that, an expectation was set. So That's it's why like you do drop, cover, hold drills. Because there's a, a social reaction that right. needs to be habituated within a workplace. We right. need to give each other permission. We need to give each other permission to say, yes, I'm in my slacks. I'm in my skirt. I'm the, I'm the VP of finance and I'm doing this. The visual example is absolutely critical because the visual example is setting an expectation for all of us to follow. So don't just wait for the great shakeout to do a drop, cover, hold drill. Don't, don't wait for that. I think it should be done frequently, not only to keep earthquakes top of mind but to reinforce the social 
expectation that this is the normal way to react and that this is the expected way to react. And we don't care how dorky and uncomfortable you feel. And we don't care that you're the VP or CEO because at the end of the day, we're all humans and things fall down on humans and hurt us. And we all need to get out of this safer. So don't overlook the social aspects. That's why you do drop cover hold drills. It's to get through the social discomfort of dropping, covering, and holding. Um, tell me a little bit more about your Prepare Out Loud presentation and what that looks like. Yeah, sure. So I've been doing it for about two and a half years, and I've given 100 presentations in about 25 cities, reaching about 15,000 people by now. Wow. And here's what I go through. So first, I tell the story of myself, just a regular fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants Oregonian who really doesn't worry about things, who suddenly went through this horrific Boxing Day tsunami scenario with my wife. I go from there to start discussing what our cultural response is in Oregon. I want people to understand that this isn't just about preparedness. We have to recognize how our culture right now is telling us not to prepare. And I talked about this before. If you go into a mixed room and bring up the earthquake and someone says, that's for my crazy uncle, or it's got to be 100 years from now, or I'm just going to... I'm just going to load up the family and walk to Idaho. That's in a way your culture is saying preparedness is not for normal people. Preparedness is not for you and it's not for me. And that's part of what we're trying to address with Prepare Out Loud. We're trying to create, teach people to start a new kind of conversation, which is why I move deep from that moment into the history and science of the subduction zone. Um, I think. I think it's really easy to dismiss earthquake risk if you don't understand the science behind it. I think we dismiss scary things that we don't understand. So I try to really make people understand in visual, beautiful videos and pictures why the Cascadia subduction zone is a risk, how often these eight and nine point earthquakes happen, when the last one was, so that they can make a common sense conclusion that, whew, wow, we don't know when the next one is, but this is going to be a big deal. And evidence points to this being soon, my generation or at least the next. From there, we move into the human reaction to earthquakes. We start talking about what happens in the brain during an emergency. We start talking about how your amygdala takes over and tells you to do things that are going to hurt you during an earthquake. Your brain is going to tell you probably to run really fast, or it's going to tell you to follow the direction of the most authoritative person in the room, regardless of what that person's doing, or your brain's going to get completely overwhelmed and do nothing. Those are the three behaviors I've seen most often in the many, many videos that I've watched. And from there, we actually do that drop to the whole drill with the reasoning that we're trying to train our amygdala and we're trying to as a group show each other that it is okay and expected to drop cover hold from there we go into non-structural mitigation things like 
securing cabinets and pianos and bookshelves. Um, we talk about uh, we talk about the things that you should keep next to your bed. We move on into tsunami preparedness um, and how to go to the beach and not be scared of the ocean, but be ready to evacuate very quickly mm-hmm. if the signs of a tsunami are on the way. And I should mention, um, as we go through all these preparedness, me- all these preparedness measures, that's all in the first person. You're looking at pictures of my living room. I'm showing you pictures of my kids. I'm showing you pictures of my actual kit and my actual supply and the place that we put it. Everything is in the first person. So as I present, it's not, you need to do this. It is, this is what my wife and I did so that we could be prepared and be ready to take care of my nine, seven, and five-year-old in the event of an earthquake. Mm. That's the language we use. After, after going through non-structural mitigation and tsunamis, then I start getting into the dark stuff. The dark stuff being what is going to be the impact of an earthquake on the Pacific Northwest? What is going to happen to our electrical grid, to our, our gas lines, to sewage, to water uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest? And the reason we go into that is because we need to give rationale behind why you need to put together a kit. Because in a way, I feel like we've never really explained to the public, what is a kit about? And the kit's pretty simple. A kit is kind of like a glorified band-aid. Right now, and actually every single day up to now, you've had running water, you've had gas heat, you've had flushing toilets, you've had a cell phone, you've had internet access. You take all these things for granted. So we have to imagine all of these things being taken away. And your kit is basically how you put a Band-Aid on all the services and utilities that you've lost. Hmm. Why do you have a flashlight? Because you don't have a light anymore. And every single item in the kit can be explained as a replacement for the utility or service that you've lost. This really helps people to have a light bulb moment that, oh, the rationale behind each item helps. Um, Because again, uh, empathy is important. Telling someone that they need to get two buckets uh, for an earthquake toilet is not as effective as, okay, listen, in Christchurch, New Zealand, after their last great earthquake, they didn't have flushing toilets in the southern part of the city for one year. Wow. This is why you are going to get some earthquake toilets and all you need to do is troll the back alleys of Japanese restaurants and get two five gallon containers from discarded soy sauce and build yourself some earthquake toilets. That's a very different way to approach any measure. Give the rationale. Show how you have done it personally. Make it accessible. Make it human. And then the final thing we do after going through all the contents that I would recommend for a kit, we talk about family reunification. And this is the toughest part. As I put it, this is where preparedness stops. I think it's pretty easy and emotion-free to secure your water heater. It doesn't, you don't shed a lot of tears as you fill up water containers to be ready for an earthquake. But the question of how you're going to reunite with your family 
when the bridges are down and the phones are out and you're scared, this is a conversation that makes people cry. And I'm saying that in the first person. My wife and I did a lot of things before we decided to have the family reunification plan because it's so painful Mm -hmm. to imagine. And you have to imagine it fully to actually prepare. And this, by the way, Todd, this is why preparedness stops. People, a lot of people aren't willing to actually go through the full imaginative exercise of realizing what it's going to be like and what you really care about and how much it's at risk. When you have the family plan conversation, you have to go fully into that exercise and it is emotionally gutting, but it's the necessary conversation. And we always end there because then it gives a runway to the next conversation you need to have. You need to, once you are ready to have that conversation with your spouse or your loved ones about how you are going to try to reunite after a major event, then maybe you've left with the courage to have a wider conversation with your workplace about what they need to do to keep everybody safe. With your kid's school, about the measures that they've taken to be ready for a major event. It's, it arms you to have a wider community conversation about preparedness in the first person. Stephen, if some, if, you know, someone wants to get a hold of you, how, how would they find you? Oh, I'm easy to find. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you want me to give my contact information? Sure. You, could, you know what? The best way to find me, go to LinkedIn. I have a pretty robust LinkedIn profile and my phone number and email are within the contact information. So I, I don't hide my contact information from anybody and I respond to everybody. And if you guys right now, um, also in the show links or the show, show links, everybody in the show notes, we'll, we'll put those links um, in there as well. So uh, you just come, can come check out the Ian weekly uh, page and you can find the stuff there or wherever you're listening to this podcast today, it'll be in the show notes at the bottom of the show. So Stephen's contact information will be down there. All right, Stephen. Excellent. Toughest question of the day. (laughs) What book or books do you give to somebody who is interested or that you want to get interested into emergency management or preparedness? The book I would recommend is Amanda Ripley's The Unthinkable. Who survives disasters and why? And the reason I like this book, and I read it five years ago, uh, just before I started presenting, is she made me understand two things. For one, the act of empathizing with your audience when you're communicating. So, for example, she talked about the things that stewardesses say, uh, I'm sorry, flight attendants say when you're on an airplane, that you need to stow your luggage above your head right? And that people sometimes don't do it. And that we can help people understand (laughs) that the simple act of putting it above your head is actually necessary because people trip on these things and can hurt themselves during an actual evacuation. So helping people understand why you need to take these simple actions um, is something that Amanda Ripley does really, really well. 
And she also explains very well the necessity of drilling. Talks a lot about um, JP Morgan uh, during 9-11, which was of course just yesterday. Right. And how the emergency manager of JP Morgan was absolutely insistent on doing full evacuation drills all the way down the stairs until you get down to the street. Because during an emergency, when you're scared, your reluctance to go down a stairwell that you've never gone down before can actually keep you from taking the right action, which is something I never would have thought about. So Amanda Ripley, The Unthinkable, is my absolute suggestion. That is a good book, an awesome book. I read it myself. And, uh, yeah, I do. I actually use that a lot when I teach community uh, preparedness uh, classes myself. All right, sir. Well, before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to say to the emergency manager out there? Is there anything else I'd like to say? I would just like to say thank you. I appreciate the work that you do so much, especially because I know it's so hard uh, to try to convince people uh, to do what is best for them and that you're doing your best to look out for a lot of us. So I just want to express gratitude. So thank you for the many of you out there who do the good work that you do. Stephen, thank you so much for uh, taking time to spend here with Ian Weekly, and especially uh, in light of the big storms that are hitting the coast of uh, North Carolina uh, this weekend. And, and uh, today, just let everybody, it's 9 12, uh, 2018. And so these storms are hitting North Carolina, South Carolina, and it looks like Florida as well coming up this weekend. So for those of those that were out there that were impacted, where we're all here for you. Stephen, again, like I said, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, uh, I want to give a shout out to the many, many American Red Cross volunteers uh, from my home here in Oregon and from throughout the throughout the U.S. who have positioned themselves to be ready for that um, that hurricane to to strike. So thank you to our volunteers for doing that. <laughs>